0: Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. So today we're gonna do a little bit of time traveling. Bear with me here. It's late in the evening on May 26, 1941, and you are a naval pilot, On board the HMS Ark Royal. You're gathered together with 14 other pilots for a briefing on your evening mission. You are to pilot your three seater, keep in mind this is World War II, your three seater canvas covered biplane, a swordfish is what it's called, against one of the greatest foes on the ocean. This particular foe has 13 inches of armor surrounding it. It can fire 1,700 pounds. That's 1,700 pound projectiles. 23 miles and be accurate. It can travel at over 37 miles an hour across the ocean. And it measures a whopping 797 feet long but that isn't it. Your little biplane swordfish is equipped with a single torpedo. It wasn't designed for this. This plane was meant to do reconnaissance, to follow the enemy, not to attack. And as if that wasn't enough, from the teeth of this massive steel beast are 400 anti-aircraft guns. You're shaking at the knees as you climb into your plane knowing that you don't stand a chance. Knowing this could very well be the last time you ever see your friends again. You also know that other ships have been successfully shadowing this particular beast for almost a week now. And just days earlier, it had sunk the HMS Hood, leaving only three survivors. Despite all of these concerns, you climb in your plane following the orders that you were given. And one after another, the planes take flight. As you gain altitude, on the horizon, you can see this beast making its way across the Atlantic. And because of the scale, It seems like it's just barely moving. But you don't have time to marvel over its size and its speed. You've got a mission to complete, orders to fulfill. And you begin your approach at around 8.55 p.m. But it's not that simple. As you approach, the air is filled with such a barrage of anti-aircraft artillery that you can't hardly fly. Yet despite all of this, you press forwards to your target, aiming, lining up, and when you reach the right altitude, the torpedo is released. You turn away from the plane and you start back to land. Well, land being relative. Back onto your aircraft carrier. It's about as much land as you might have seen for weeks and months but you head back anyways as the white bubbling streak of the torpedo makes a beeline for the ship. If you'll bow your heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to ask that you be with this time. Help us to realize that we live in a time of life or death decisions. And I ask that you be with the words that I speak. Let them be your words and not my own. In your name I pray, amen. If you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. We find here a statement and I wanna open with it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 says, Look, I am presenting you today with on the one hand, life and good and on the other, death and evil. Maybe you're going, wait, how does this tie in? Well, let's take a look at the New Testament now. We're gonna be moving around pretty quick here. James 3, verses two through 12. That's where we're gonna focus most of our time today. And here, I believe that the Bible expounds upon that statement in Deuteronomy. For we all stumble in many ways. If someone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man who can bridle his whole body. You see, if we put a bit into a horse's mouth to make it obey us, we control its whole body as well. I know that there's some people here who ride horses, who love working with horses. I'm one of those. There's nothing more terrifying than trying to get a horse to obey without a bit in its mouth and not knowing the horse. With a bit, you can steer the entire horse. You can tell it which way to go. You can make it stop. You can communicate such a broad range of things just through this horse's mouth, and it controls its whole body. Now, verse 4 continues, And think of a ship. Although it is huge and driven by strong winds, The pilot can steer it wherever he wants with just a small rudder. 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 Hit, exclaims the radio man of your plane. And you jump, startled and surprised. "What, What do you mean hit? Or we hit? Well, you continue flying, so you assume that you haven't been hit catastrophically and all of the planes that had taken off with you return and land successfully and safely. But the results of that risk that you and your comrades have taken appears minimal at best. There were only a few hits and no damage. The ship hasn't sunk, there's no fire. But little to your knowledge, this great beast, the German battleship, the Bismarck, is left turning loose clockwise circles through the Atlantic Ocean as other British warships close in on it. The Bismarck would sink the next day, May 27, 1941, claiming over 2,000 lives. But what set in motion this catastrophic sinking Why did the greatest battleship of its time sink to the bottom of the ocean? Let me give you a hint. It was set in motion by a biplane. You see, a single torpedo was dropped and struck the steering gear of the Bismarck, disabling it, leaving it turning circles there was nothing they could do. In fact, we're told, based on what was passed along by some people familiar with that ship, that an individual, an officer, came to the admiral of the ship and went, what do you want me to do with this ship? Do you want me to just blow the rudder off? Maybe then we can get somewhere, knowing that they weren't getting very far. In fact, their speed had been reduced from... 37 miles an hour to a mere 15. Their destroyers edged ever closer while the steering gear was jammed. And after further bombardment and torpedo strikes, the Bismarck was sunk. James warns us of the way in which our tongue acts as the rudder of our lives. You see, it is a life or death decision. Although the rudder guides the ship, it is the helmsman who controls the rudder. Similarly, though the tongue may be small and insignificant in the overall scheme of things, and it gives direction to the whole body, it is directed by the will. A man's words reveal the pattern of his thoughts. You see, as Christians, we should strive to control our words in such a way that we reflect Christ. We should speak as Christ would speak. We should interact with others as Christ would interact. And a part of that comes here I found something fascinating while I was studying for this and I believe it was the Adventist Bible commentary it stated believers are not only to avoid destructive speech but they are also to avoid fanning destructive sparks discharged from the speech of others so I grew up in Pathfinders That has been something that has been integral to who I am and why I'm here. In fact, I'd go out on a limb and say that without Pathfinders, I wouldn't be in the church still. But I remember one day we were learning to start fires with a nine-volt battery and steel wool. It sounds a little weird, doesn't it? A nine-volt battery and steel wool can start a fire, believe it or not. One of my friends had lit the steel wool and we'd been told not to blow on it. Well, he blew on it. That little spark ignited the entire ball of steel wool, which promptly flew and landed on my leg. I don't dance, but I was dancing. You see, he blew on this spark, and it very easily could have hurt somebody else. It almost hurt me. I almost got burned. It's the same way with our words. If somebody speaks something that's false or hurtful to somebody else and I continue to spread that rumor on and on and on, I'm fanning a flame and I'm extending the life of this spark that somebody else ignited intending harm. Let's pick back up in James 3 verse 5. So too the tongue is a tiny part of the body yet it boasts great things. See how a little tongue sets a whole forest ablaze. It only takes a spark to start a roaring fire. It doesn't matter how extensive the spread of the forest, it's still in danger from the impacts of an uncontrolled fire. I don't know if any of you guys are from out west, I'm not, but I've, I do pay attention to what happens sometimes. On July 13, 2021, the second largest fire in California history started by a tree that had fallen on a power line. It became the largest single source fire in California history. It burned ninety or nine hundred and sixty-three thousand. 309 acres. It lasted from July 13 through October 25th. People were displaced from their homes. The forest was on fire. And it took them three months to finally control it. No matter how big the forest, how big the spread of the land, it's all in danger from that one small spark that ignited the dry fuel. Verse six, yes, the tongue is a fire, a world of wickedness. The tongue is so placed in our body that it defiles every part of it, setting ablaze the whole of our life and it is set on fire by hell itself. That's blunt, isn't it? Kind of hit me like a ton of bricks when I read it. And it's interesting to note that when the tongue destroys friendship, harmony, and peace, it is motivated by the accuser of the brethren. It is motivated by Satan himself when you are setting forth with your tongue to attack, to destroy, to take away the peace, it's motivated by the accuser of the brethren himself. It truly is a life or death decision. Verse seven says, for people have tamed and continue to tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures. But the tongue, no one can tame. It is a stable and good thing. Is that what it says? No. It is an unstable and evil thing, full of death-dealing poison. But what about that no one can tame the tongue bit? Let's talk about that. What is an untamed tongue? Well, the Bible calls it an unstable and evil thing. Let's start there. But it's also interesting to note that this same phrase, literally the tongue of evil, which in Judaism refers to gossip, backbiting, rumor-mongering, slander, and other misuses of speech. In fact, in Judaism, according to the Talmud, it's one of the things that a Jew should give his life up for rather than commit. For them, it bears the same weight as idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder. This is serious. The Bible tells us it's serious. In fact, one could even look at this tongue of the evil as a person who takes God's name in vain as seen in the Ten Commandments. One should note that this idea of speaking God's name in vain or taking the Lord's name in vain could also be using his name to justify one's actions. In fact, you could sum it up as an attempt to claim that God has authorized an attack on individuals or their faith. But that's not what this sermon's about. So what about that never being able to tame the tongue part? Well, this doesn't mean that the tongue can never be brought under control, but that sinful human nature alone will never be able to control the tongue. Man can tame and subdue all kinds of animals, but he lacks the power to subdue his own tongue. It is only through the grace of God that he can tame the tongue. And the reason for that, the tongue is full of death-dealing it acts upon the happiness of a man and the peace of society as poison upon the human body. The loss of confidence, peace, and friendship inevitably results from a hasty, ill-advised tongue. There once lived a man who had great wealth. He had everything. He had a huge family many sons and daughters. And one day, he lost it all. In fact, he even lost his good health. He became so sick that he sat on an ash heap, scraping himself with a piece of pottery because of the boils that he had. These horrible blisters on his body. I don't know how many of you guys have ever gotten like poison ivy and that, those blisters and they just itch and you're about ready to just claw your arm off trying to scratch it enough that it finally feels good only to realize it's making it worse. Well, this man had some friends and they came for really the first week. They did such a good job of comforting him and being there for him. but they had it all wrong. They accused this man of hiding something from God, claiming that he was perfect, that there was nothing kept secret. And yet, they told this man, surely you've sinned against God and are hiding something from him. How dare you do it? This is why God has done this to you. You're lying to God. How many of you know which story I'm talking about? The story of Job. You see, Job's friends did great at coming alongside of him and comforting him until they spoke with a hasty, ill advised tongue. And before we start to say that we have everything right, let's realize that we are humans. And that God is God. We are not. So this death-dealing poison bit, the hasty tongue, how often we rush into things without realizing the weight of what we are saying. Verse nine, with it, we bless the Lord, the Father, And with it, we curse people who were made in the image of God. Jesus tells us that evidence of being a true Christian, a true follower of him, a true believer, comes from blessing your enemies, from loving your enemies. As I heard it, put one time by, I don't know if any of you guys know, Pastor LeClaire Litchfield. He said, kill them with love. Love them so much that it changes them. You see, Jesus sets an example in his temptation. When Satan comes to him, trying to tempt him, trying to get him to fall, he brings scripture. And yet, Jesus doesn't turn around and give this railing accusation against him, cursing Satan and condemning him to where he does belong. Here's why. Cursing springs from hate and it exhibits the very spirit of the accuser of the brethren. It is a life or death decision. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Brothers, it isn't right for things to be this way. James points out that a man may be double-tongued and double-minded. You could say it as speaking one thing and living another. And those, some of the believers that James wrote to we're living this double minded life, this double tongued life, in which they cursed men and blessed God. He does not provide ground for the other believers to attack and to mistreat them. Rather, he calls others to love those who are struggling and to lovingly encourage them to repent and change. Though some of the church members to whom James wrote to were guilty of cursing men and blessing God, he still treated them with affection. Last night as I was wrapping up my prep for this sermon, God kind of smacked me. You see, Thursday we had a pretty good round of storms roll through. And I had just gotten out of something at school, and I wanted to get home before it started raining. For those of you that don't know, in Dale we had a train derailment over the Christmas break. I got behind somebody who decided to stop in the middle of Appison Pike and look at the train derailment. As the storm's rolling in, there's lightning popping, thunder rolling, the wind's blowing, I can feel it pushing my car a little bit, and I want to get home. And so in my car, I start to myself talking about this person. You need to just drive. Why don't you drive? It's about to rain. I want to get home. And then we proceeded down the next two miles of Appeson Pike at a whopping 20 miles an hour. Needless to say, I didn't make it home before the rain. But I think that God was teaching me a lesson here. You see, every day... I try to make an intentional effort to thank God for the blessings that He's given me and to praise Him, to bless God. But was I really blessing God in that moment? Here I am, so determined that I don't want to get wet, that I'm willing to badmouth another driver, not to their face, which I would say is even worse. Because then it sits inside and it festers and it becomes something ugly and bitterness sets in. But I think there's more there. In fact, I don't think, I believe there's more there. Being angry at others on the road could very well be a life or death decision. But once again, there's more there. See, I found myself in this moment essentially cursing men and blessing God. And God called me out for it. And if you ask Noriah last night as I was talking through this, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It is a life or death decision. Verse 11 A spring doesn't send both fresh and bitter water from the same opening, does it? Can a fig tree yield olives, my brothers, or a grapevine figs? Neither does salt water produce fresh. Let's take a little trip outside. Not literally. I'm not going to make you get up and walk out the door. I might get in trouble with the sound guys, and you guys might not be able to follow me quite as well might be more of a distraction. But you've been out in the woods without water for two days. And you know that you're on the verge of severe dehydration. You know that it's urgent that you find water because the general rule for survival that you've always been taught is that you have three days without water before you die. So you begin this search, and as you trudge through the woods... You hear the gurgling of running water. You start jumping up and down for joy. You might even do a little bit of a dance, thanking God for sending you water. And you walk over to the spring, and you take a scoop of water, and you drink out of your cupped hands. And you spit it out. It's salty. And all of your training, all of your instinct tells you that this salty water will only dehydrate you worse. And you know that there's no physical way for fresh water to come out of that same spring. So you begin to journey to find another spring and eventually you find one and it's fresh water. You thank God because you and all of those who are with you have been saved. Even though there's no physical way for salt water and fresh water to flow out of the same spring, how often do blessings and curses flow from the same mouth? How often do we turn to our friend and say one thing and then do another or we say Blessings to the people that we love and that we care about and those that might mistreat us we're bitter and destructive and hurtful towards. This should not be the way that it is for a believer because it is a life or death decision. Proverbs 18 verse 21 tells us that the tongue has the power of life And death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Let's unpack that a tiny little bit here. Used in harmony with the will of God to bless, to cheer, and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the tongue can do great good. When you allow yourself to be filled with the grace of God, and beyond that, to be changed. By the grace of God. It brings the taming of the tongue. And yes, at times we will all make mistakes because we are all sinful. But that grace of God is what allows us to cheer others up, to encourage others, to proclaim His favor, His grace, His mercy is love. But those who love the tongue, who pamper it, who give it free rein, will do much harm. But here's the catch. That harm will return to themselves. It's a bit heavy, isn't it? You see, a tongue that's been handed over to God, that's been filled with the grace of God, is good for mentoring and encouraging. Think of Paul and Silas. Without Silas, Paul wouldn't have stood a chance. But standing there before the early church, Silas gets up and goes, Listen to this guy. God spoke to him. He's not who he used to be. But yet, nobody wanted to believe him. Everybody wanted to believe the rumors and honestly, the track record that he had. His name had been tainted by his past. And it led others to speak ill of him. Remember that hasty, ill-advised speech? That's what happened. And how often do we today speak before we understand? How many of us, rather than listening, just hear to answer? I can tell you it's caused a lot of hurt for me. Most of us guys like to have the mentality of, I'll fix it. You got a problem? Tell me about it, I'll fix it. Am I the only one in that boat? I don't think I am. Okay, good. Rather than listening, I find myself hearing the words so I can give an answer but not actually understand. And sometimes that means that those who I love and who I care about the most have to smack me upside the head. Sometimes a two-by-four is not enough with a six-by-six or bigger to finally get my attention and make me shut up and listen. Because I speak before I truly understand. And it causes hurt. And that hurt comes back onto me. For those of us who are younger, this might mean more. But I think it means so much for all of us. First Timothy 4 verse 12 Paul is encouraging Timothy. And he says, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. Those of you who are young, you are the church of today. Not tomorrow, not of the future, of today. And don't let anyone look down on you because you were young. But here comes the charge that Paul gives. But on the contrary, set the believers an example in speech, behavior, love, trust, and purity. Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 through 20. I call on heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have presented you with life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life so that you will live, you and your descendants, loving the Lord your God, paying attention to what he says and clinging to him. For that is the purpose of your life. It is a life or death decision. Therefore choose life. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.